Okay, we're going to begin here. Uh, we'll begin with a word of prayer. So let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Um, Almighty and ever-living God, you fulfilled your promise by, by sending the gift of the Holy Spirit to unite to unite disciples of all nations in the cross and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. By the preaching of the Holy Gospel, spread this gift to the ends of the earth. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 Okay, so chapter 6, go play outside. I thought that was a pretty good title. Uh, kind of, kind of funny. Um, before we get into the questions and everything, and, and you know, I think it goes without saying that a lot of these questions we're just kind of like some dabble in the others, and so it's not going to be super strict as to, um, you know. So it's, I think this this morning I was I was I was answering number three. And I wound up answering four at the same time. And then when I got to number four, I was just like, oh, so uh, answer this. And they're just like, you kind of already did. And I was like, all right, so let's just keep going. Um, Two of my answers say C number one. <clears throat> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's all connected. Of course, the guy who wrote these was not, was not Pastor Wolfmuller, so um, somebody else. But <clears throat> they're not bad to get things started. But before we get into the questions, what were some highlights y'all had, or even struggles you might have had with this chapter. Let's, let's start with the highs. What were some highlights? Well, when uh, we, we're told to go... go everyone be baptized. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus didn't say, okay, everyone be baptized, but the babies. <laughs> now we want you to wait. Right. So, how, I loved how he talked about that with the, the, the grandparents. And he would say, you know, it's just like, because they asked, it's like, how can you baptize children? They haven't made the decision yet. And he goes, you got grandkids, right? Um, let me just tell you, what if I told you you cannot give them a Christmas gift their very first Christmas? Mm -hmm. You can't give them a birthday gift on their very first birthday. You got to wait to give them a gift until they are old enough to ask for it. Mm -hmm. And then that one lady in the back just goes, point made. You know, yeah. so it's like, yeah, this, this gift is for your children and for those who are far off as, as, uh, um, as St. Peter says in, in uh, Acts, right? So yeah, I thought that was a great, great point. I, I, I love how he's very practical and very straightforward with how to talk about these things so that so that everybody can kind of grasp onto what he's talking about. It's not too lofty or anything like that. Too abstract, I guess you could say. Very concrete. Any other any other uh, highlights from this chapter? Yeah, along the same lines, question five, you know, why would you give it to him later? The only thing I can think of is income tax. Income tax. <laughs> income. So you have like some sort of statement. So you like 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, it may be beneficial to, uh, like right now it's uh, 26%, later on it's a 15%. That's the only thing I could think of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if you could get away with that if you got a birth certificate and all that stuff, but, you know, I mean, unless it was a home birth and, the, and then the only record you have was the, the parish <laughs> registry that said baptism, so, I mean... I, is that what you're getting at? Is that? No, I mean a, a, gift, a gift. A gift. Oh, a gift. gift a I got gotcha. you. A gift to a person. Oh, I thought you meant like baptism, like you're trying to hold off on like no, declaring, I mean, like, a gift <laughs> declaring your your dependence or something like that. And I was like, oh, where are you going with this, James? It's kind of an interesting scheme you got going on here. A gift. That's so funny. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. A gift. So you wouldn't want to give a gift right away. Oh man. Okay. All right. <laughs> Any other highlights from this chapter? No? What about some challenges y'all had with this chapter? What were some challenges? Something that st stuck out to you? So as a highlight, um, oh, sure, yeah. I should have mentioned this, but I really appreciate the distinction between a sacrament and ordinance. That's mm -hmm. one that I've thought of for a long time and I hadn't heard explicitly set out in this manner. So yeah. It's really helpful. Okay. Yeah. 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 It is, it is one of those things that's, um, I mean, I, I, I mentioned it this morning and I was, and I said, you know, uh, that as Lutherans, we, we get caught up in making <clears throat> what, when I should say not not if, but when we have these discussions with other Christians who see the, the sacraments in a, in a way that they are ordinances, it becomes, I think we sometimes lose focus of certain aspects of the sacrament as well. Like when it comes to Holy Communion, um, we focus so much on Jesus saying, it is my body, you know, this bread is my body, this cup is uh, the new covenant in my blood, right? And then we forget sometimes that we ought to do it in remembrance of him, right? Mm -hmm. So when, you know, those who might see it as an ordinance would say, well, we're doing this in remembrance. Sometimes Lutherans get to the point where we, we kind of balk at that and be like, yeah, but, you know, it's like, no, 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 we, are, we do this in remembrance of Jesus, but it's participating in that uh, in the salvation that he has won with his body and blood on the cross, right? It's, it's kind of like, um, and I mentioned this this morning as well, it's kind of like in Deuteronomy when Moses is giving the commandments again to the new generation that will go into the promised land. And he said, remember when we came out of the land of Egypt. Remember when I came down from Mount Sinai with the law with the tablets of the law. And the people said, no, we don't remember because either we were infants or we weren't born yet, right? Those were our parents who saw that. So to remember doesn't mean you remember it as if you were there or it's not a, re, a recreation, like a, it's not a reenactment, right? Of what happened, but it is a participation in the work that God has done him continuing that work in that sacrament, you know? So it's just, it's a different way to think about it. It's not something that I think is very typical in American Christian understanding of these things, right? Yeah, so yeah, the, the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament. I mean, it's pretty, pretty important. <laughs> Any other 
highlights or challenges, questions about this chapter? Well, the only question I had was in question one when we get to that. All right, yeah, okay. Before before we do that, anybody else want to just throw something else out there? Or y'all just want to get right to it? Get right to it. Okay, we'll just do that. So, number one, question one. So, um, you know, from him saying American Christianity keeps the spiritual life on the quote-unquote the inside, right? Why do they do this? Why do they keep it on the inside? So the focus is on me. So the focus is on me. Okay, it's interesting, yeah. Um, any other any other thoughts on, on that? That's, that's definitely part of it. Could there be more to that? Could also be a cynicism toward things that are external. Just a fairly American, typical <laughs> mistrust in any source of authority or doctrine or categorical teaching. Oh, interesting. <laughs> we yeah. generally don't believe anything about any of that, so yeah. why make an exception for the things of God? You know? Right. It's un-American. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's un-American. I love it. So it's, it's, it's one of those things, yeah, I, I think it comes down to a lot of... Uh, um, you know, well, if I don't understand it, if it doesn't move me in a certain way, I'm just probably not going to do it. Right? I'm, I'm, if, if it doesn't move me to believe, then eh, who needs it? That's kind of part of it. But then, yeah, it comes back to it's about, it's about you. It's about how you feel or um, what specifically speaks to you on whatever sort of maybe subjective level. You know, just put it very plainly. On a subjective level, it's a little bit easier to relate if it, you know, makes sense to you, if it moves you, right? Um, so also, you know, Pastor Wolf Miller puts it in these terms that the typical thought is that anything outside of us, right, anything done outside of us is equated with the law, right? It's a work. That's how it's seen. Um, so if it's outside of us, and it's a law, but we are people of the gospel, then obviously it needs to be, it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting paradigm, right? Outside, bad, inside, good in some ways. And in some ways that also means law, bad, gospel, good, to a certain extent, right? Um, but what's ultimately lost by this understanding? When you keep the spiritual life on the inside, what's lost? You have no input from the Holy Spirit. No input from the Holy Spirit? Yeah, because how, how do you determine that? Why wouldn't you have input from the Holy Spirit if it was all on the inside? Think. In, out. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, uh, um... If someone says, you know, in my heart, I just don't trust it, or it doesn't move my heart to do these things, or my heart doesn't feel in it, or whatever. I mean, what, is, what does Scripture say about the heart? Deceitful above all things. Right. Desperately so, wicked. Yeah. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. That's right. Yeah. 
the heart is <laughs> deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can, who can understand it, right? That's, a, that's my favorite thing when anybody says, follow your heart. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't really know if that's the best idea, you know. Um, just to be nice about it, you know, to, be, to be gentle about it. I don't think you really know it. You keep saying that word, I don't think it means what you think it means, you know. Um, so yeah, what's lost is that when you're judging everything in your heart, uh, you're on shaky ground, right? Um, your, your emotions and your feelings can vacillate one way or the other. And if you're going off of what's inside of you, objectivity has gone, right? Subjectivity reigns in a lot of ways. Um, and this is, this is the way I'll put it. Um, that if you, feelings are not a bad thing, right? Let me just say that very first and foremost. Feelings by themselves are not bad uh, because if that were so, then I shouldn't have joy when my children are born, right? I shouldn't be joyful when I get to baptize my children, right? Or anybody else, right? I shouldn't be joyful or I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be sad or mournful when somebody dies if feelings are bad, right? No one's saying that feelings are bad, but when feelings rule the roost, it, it you know, your feelings can shift based on information. So let's say that, um, let's say that my wife got on a plane. I took her to the, I take her to the airport. She gets on a plane. And then as I'm driving home, I hear on the radio that the flight that my wife just got on, is supposed to be on, just crashed and everybody on that flight is dead. What am I going to feel? Despair. Shock. Sad. Yeah. Shock, sadness, despair. You're going to feel feelings. Yeah, exactly. I will feel things, right? And they won't be good. They'll feel awful. Now, what about an hour later when I get a phone call from my wife saying, don't worry, I got on a different flight. What am I going to feel then? Hell no. Shock. Joy. Yeah. Hallelujah. Joy. <laughs> shock again, right? Yeah. But what's changed, right? So the feeling that was based on false information was just as powerful as the feeling based on the true information, right? So, but what would happen if I got that phone call from my wife and I said, no, I can't believe it. I, my feelings <laughs> tell me that you're dead, you know? <laughs> yeah. Don't like, go. yeah, don't go there. Yeah, right. So that would be bad, right? I would be letting the inside dictate the information coming in from the outside, right? Now, scripture, it, scripture and the sacraments and everything of God's promises are more than just information, but that's just an example, right? So when you keep things on the inside, subjectivity is paramount because your feelings can change. Um, how your heart feels about something is going to shift. But um, when you have that, certainty goes out the window um, because you don't have that objectivity, okay? Any, any questions or thoughts about that? James, did you have a... You had something about number one, right? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so when they say insider, are they referring to the heart? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, I think they do typically. Um, I would say yeah, because uh, what does he say? 
on page like 119, he says, American Christianity must conclude that there are no blessings or spiritual benefits in baptism of the Lord's Supper because both happen outside your heart, right? And the heart is the center of our being as we would picture it, you know, in our thinking, right? Yeah, so what's lost by this? They don't mention soul. So I got to thinking, the three parts of the body, is it heart, body, and soul, or mind, body, and soul? Yeah, you know, that's that's a good question. And there's different thoughts on this. I don't know if Scripture is necessarily clear on this distinction. I know that Luther had a, had a thought. Uh, he, he, he was, you know, of the classical thought that you have... You have the spirit, you have a soul, and you have the body. Um, and the spirit and the soul are distinct by something. I can't remember exactly what so it is. the spirit is the mind or the heart? Well, that's kind of funny. I, I really don't know. I think, I think the spirit would be like kind of what we would equate to be the heart. Mm-hmm. You know, that it comes out of the heart. When you, but, but the soul is what would be known as like your personhood that makes you you. Uh, because the word soul comes from uh, the Greek word psuche, which is where we get the word psychology, right? So your psyche. Uh, instead of it being all about your head, it is about your entire being. So when, when Jesus and um, the New Testament talks about, you know, that your life will be saved or that you, you will save your life, sometimes they don't talk about your physical being. They talk about your soul, your beingness it's kind of a funny concept that we can go into some other time but um i think that's what they're talking about when it comes to you know spirit soul distinction which is you know like i said scripture is not clear exactly how those should be divided but we have some helpful distinctions made from like antiquity and whatnot to see how people might think about that does that make sense yeah, so not really. <laughs> spiritual, spiritual life on the inside they're referring to heart. Then where is the soul in spiritual life? Yeah, that's a good question. I and I, mean, <laughs> I don't know if that distinction's even really made, and it's a good question. Um, probably yeah. neglected. Could maybe take that even a step further and ask that if if the whole of religious experience occurs in here, then doesn't that mean that there is no spirit out there. There's no soul in our collective worship. There's nothing that happens when the church is together being the church. Mm-hmm. And all of that is simply imagined by whatever's in here for taking it. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, sounds like a really crazy thing to say, but there are a lot of philosophies that, that would hold that the only thing you can know for sure is what's inside your mind. Yeah, and which which then becomes hyper-individualistic. Yeah, right. becomes antisocial, yeah. Yeah. So, so when it's, and that's kind of what American Christianity does become, hyper-individualism. That, you know, that's, that's probably why now you have a lot of Christians who do say, you know, well, I believe, I'm a Christian and I believe, I believe in Jesus. But they'll believe maybe that Jesus is gay affirming or affirms LGBTQ or something like that because that's the loving thing to do and someone else will come along and say no Jesus wouldn't affirm that just like listen you do you I'll believe what I want to believe right because that's how that's how I feel because I couldn't believe in a Jesus who wouldn't do those sorts of things does that make sense Mm -hmm. 
I think I cut you off yeah. there, Jake. I don't know if I, no, you were going to no. say something else. That's, that's the same thing, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it does turn into hyper-individualism or just individualistic um, to where everyone's kind of an island and no one's really joined together. Doctrine doesn't bind us together. You know, we're not united in a common confession of faith. That's, that's kind of what's happened with the whole, uh, you know, the anti-creedal understanding in American Christianity where it's just like, you know, the old, the old phrase deeds, not creeds kind of thing where it's just like, well, we don't, we don't ascribe to any creed, but it's like you, you do that and you kind of break yourself off from the rest of Christianity that just holds to the basic truths of what scripture teaches. So you leave yourself open to attack as it were. It turns the church into just members of the church. And not a body. Yeah, and not a body. Yeah, they're just kind of floating around doing their own thing. Good point. Good point. So, man, it's amazing where we get on, <laughs> on these questions. I love it. I love deep, it. Deep, deep, deep stuff. stuff, man. Yeah, for sure. A lot of meat to chew on. It is. It is. Um, so, number two. Let's just keep moving on here. Uh, the kingdom of God comes by promise and faith. And Jesus connects this promise to water, as we see on page 122, right? So how do you, and I think these are trick questions, to be honest with you. How do you find the Spirit, and how do you feel the Spirit? What, what do you think? How do you find the Spirit? Well, the first thing you need is a good, strong tempo. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, not too fast, not too slow. Yeah, skilled percussionist. Some some people, some people prefer a piano. Others prefer a guitar. It just depends on your your stylings. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good steady tempo. Um, and it's, and at some point there needs to be a crescendo. And then a, yes. Yes. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so really though, how do you find the spirit? What do you think? Is that a trick question? You find the spirit by hearing the word. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Kind of like what he, what was, he said that he went to a, a liturgical Lutheran service for the first time in a long time. He said, I just didn't, the spirit wasn't there. Mm -hmm. right? But then he's like, how wrong I was because the word was there. Right? He works through the word, preached, proclaimed, right? Um, and so where the word of God is, there the spirit is working. And we would even say that about other churches that we don't necessarily agree completely with, you know, that we're not we're not sectarian in a sense where it's like you must be a Lutheran or else you're not going to heaven. You're not a Christian unless you're Lutheran. We don't believe that. We believe that where the word is preached, there Christians can be. So you can be Roman Catholic and you can be a Christian. You can be Presbyterian and be a Christian. It's kind of hard, I think. But, um, <laughs> you, can, you can be an Episcopalian and be a Christian. Again, pretty hard, I think. But yeah. When they die, they're going to Right. And God knows who they are that yeah. truly believe. That's right. And so the thing is, is that because the word is proclaimed, even though it may not be in its fullness, I mean, it can still do its work. Uh, on some level, you can also say the Holy Spirit can be hindered in a way. Um, but 
as God says, my word does not return to me void. Right? It always accomplishes what it sets out to do. So, um, where the word is, the Holy Spirit is working. Um, how do you feel the Spirit? How do you feel it? <laughs> such a weird question, I'm sorry. How do you feel the Spirit? Going back to the other chapter we read, I would hope I would feel the Spirit tugging at my conscience. That's a good, that's a good point, yes. I think that's very good. That's a very good point. Um, in a very basic sense of what we would understand feelings to be, I guess, equated with emotions, that's kind of a disconnect from that, I guess. So in some ways, yeah, you, I would say I, I had a strong answer. I said, you don't feel the spirit, you hear him. But I think that you would hear him now that you said that. You'd hear him and you would feel either a burden on your conscience, rightfully so, because the weight of the law is weighing upon you, or a, a lightened conscience, a, a good forgiven conscience because of what the gospel has proclaimed to you, right? So yeah, but again, that's because of the word, right? It's not about, um, it's not about a good tempo, <laughs> It's not about how, you know, how the lights are hitting just at the right moment, you know, during, during the music. Or, and, it, and it's, it's not even about how the pastor's talking very emphatically, right? No, it's not about that. Although that can be important, right? You know, you, you don't want your pastor to just be up there speaking like a robot. Um, Monotone the whole sermon. Yeah, well, I, I told, uh, was it a professor of mine in the seminary, he, he said that when he went to the seminary, I think it was back in like the 50s or so, 60s? Anyways, when he went to the seminary, he said that they taught him, when you get up in the lectern and you read scripture from the lectern for the service, don't insert any inflections. Just read the word in a monotone voice because the word does the work. <laughs> and, he, and at the time he thought... That's great because then I don't have to worry too much about, you know, whether I'm inflecting too much on this word or that word. And then later on, once he kind of matured a little bit as being a pastor, he was just like, that just kind of, it just kind of takes away, I, like, what we do in church is very incarnational, right? That it is personal in that way. And that you should have some personality of the pastor come out in reading to emphasize certain parts so that people would hear certain parts more than others if that's what's necessary. Or, you know, either way, the word's going to do its work. But if you're going to make it monotone, you know, it just kind of, it's, it's hard to hear. I totally agree with you. We had a pastor low one time that was monotone. I think that's why Christy and another the, the dikes left they just fell asleep every morning <laughs> it's like they <laughs> just didn't cut it yeah yeah i mean there's something to be said where it's not all about how it's delivered but that needs to be some kind of factor right you need yeah. to have your personality come out a little bit a little bit of something right yeah awake. Right. No, <laughs> Keep the example in scripture of the apostles preaching powerfully, you know. They they're not without rhetoric. That's true. <laughs> they use rhetoric. Yeah, and, and that's that's kind of one of our old prayers from uh, TLH. It's a general prayer of the church that just says, you know, that, that we would preach thy word with power. I'm just like, yeah, you know, I mean 
Um, there's something to be said for rhetoric and, and being able to deliver a sermon well. Who is Colin? It's dinner time. What are they calling out here for? Recording. I'll pick it up. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so, okay. So the Spirit speaks through the Word. You, I think it's a good point. I mean, you would feel the Spirit in your conscience either weighing you down rightfully or uh, alleviating the burden with the gospel, right? Lifting. Hmm? Lifting. Lifting, yeah. Lifting up your conscience so that it's it's a good forgiven conscience, right? Um, <clears throat> so American Christianity... Well, actually, does anybody else have any comments about finding the Spirit, feeling the Spirit, anything like that before we move on? Well, feel, feel. I think feelings are overrated anymore. Way <laughs> <laughs> overrated. You're such a stoic. It's great. <laughs> I don't really vibe with that, man. <laughs> yeah. You hurt my feelings. I'm offended. You're right. offended. <laughs> oh, grow <God>. up! <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and... Um, yeah, feelings, when they're allowed to rule as they kind of are nowadays, yeah, we need, we need to bring it back to some objectivity, right? Which is hopefully what we get, which is what we should be getting out of our churches and out of our pastors and out of the Bible, right? So, yeah. All right. I'm just, can I add before we... Yeah, go ahead, please. Behind, the other half of what we probably should feel is assurance and confidence, which mm -hmm. are emotions and you like like you say you can't trust your own feeling of assurance on its own grounds mm -hmm. but if you are assured by the scriptures that god loves you and has cared for you through christ then there's no reason to doubt that even right. if it makes you happy right <laughs> yeah i mean <clears throat> you um Mm -hmm. Yeah, the weight's been lifted, retrieved. it's yeah. been removed from you. Yeah, that I remember someone saying one time, well, we want people to leave church happy. Nope. And I said, <laughs> okay. There wasn't no law then, was there? Yeah, well, it's just like, we want people to leave happy. And my point was, well, what's their reason for their happiness if that's the goal? You know, I mean, what's the reason for it? And, and when you ask that question, I think kind of reorients you back where it should be. But also, I think recently I've, I've heard, and I think I agree with this, there's a difference between happiness and joy. You know, that, that I, I can be joyful even when I am distraught. It's kind of a funny thing, you know, that when we pray in the Psalms, you know, that Restore unto me the happiness of thy salvation. No, the joy of thy salvation, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that joy is um, a more lasting and resilient um, emotion, feeling, characteristic of you know, being assured of your salvation, right? That's great. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, good points. Um, trying to think here. Okay, so uh, American Christianity distrusts anything that is outside of us, quote unquote outside, number three, right? 
why? I mean, we kind of touched on it before that anything outside of us must be law, but what's the reasoning for that? What did he what did he mention about that? Why? Well, I wrote down, but it's outside of us. We don't have control over it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If it's, yeah, that's a good point. Good point. That, that would only be a problem yeah. if we only trusted ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think is an American way to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So, yeah, I remember I had a conversation. I think I told this story before where it was like, I was, I was in... I was at Huntington for grad school, and there was this one class where this, where this professor was kind of giving a history lesson on the church, and he said, you know, what a lot of, um, what a lot of American Christians believe, like the foundation of what they believe about baptism and, and uh, communion or, or even just fellowship and the way that church should be, really was foundational in uh, Charles Finney, right, which, happened, which is like about two, 200 years ago. And he said, but before that, and, and, you know, even beyond Luther and all that stuff like that, you saw salvation in a different way, that it was completely something that God did. It was completely something outside of yourself coming in. And when he made this explanation, kind of like a lot of what we've been reading in this book, one guy, after that particular session of class, he just like had his head in his hands. And I went to him and was like, are you Okay. And he's like, it's just, it's just a lot. It's a lot to take in. And I said, what's, what's so tough about it? And he said, you know, I knew I needed to trust Jesus. I just didn't know I needed to trust him that much, you know? Oh, yeah. And great. yeah, it's great. I mean, he's, he's doubting himself at that point in time because mm -hmm. he was one of those guys that first and foremost, when he would introduce himself, God bless him. He said, when I was 11 years old, I decided I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's part of his introduction of who he is. But then once that all is kind of brought into question, he's kind of flirting with despair at that point in time, right? Um, but on some level, we need to kind of despair of ourselves and seek that which is outside of us because that's when we get that objective um, reality coming in and any other thoughts about why American Christianity just distrust anything outside of us? It's a society we live in. There's so much cheating and, um, you know, politicians are all mm -hmm. corrupt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, businesses, Mm -hmm. Financial institution, financial businesses, mm -hmm. take your money and it's all a scam, you know, things like that. Yeah, so all you can trust is you, right? Yes, it would come to yeah. that point. Unless you're a Christian, and then you trust God, Jesus, the triune God, mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, it's kind of like what James was saying. If it's outside of you, you can't really control it. Right. Right? It gets a little scary. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think, you know, he mentioned that it's a philosophical kind of thing. Whenever somebody, you know, whatever you would say that, um, uh, what is it? Whenever you would say that about, about baptism that, and we'll get into this about 
baptism in number four, but you know, there's, there's that, when you say that baptism and baptismal regeneration, that God is the one doing the cleansing of the water through, through the water and the word, someone will say salvation is by grace through faith apart from works. Therefore, baptism cannot save. Right. And he says, this is an argument from philosophy and not from the Bible. And I, he doesn't go into it. And I don't know if he would agree with this, but I think that a lot of it stems back from really the first heresy that the church had to deal with, um, that the Christ, that, that the New Testament church had, had to deal with, the post-apostolic church had to deal with, which was Gnosticism. As they may know what Gnosticism is, it's... It teaches that the material world is inherently evil. Right. Along with a lot of other things, right? It's, it's, it's a pretty deep... Uh, classic Gnosticism is a deep, deep discussion we don't have time to go into right now. But Gnosticism, in case you want to know how that's spelled, it's uh, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism. Coming from the Greek word to know. So it's all about like a secret knowledge. And that secret knowledge includes that the material world is bad. The spiritual world is good. I mean, that's it in the most basic understanding. Um, material or physical world, right? Physical world is bad. Spiritual is good. And you'd get different manifestations of that. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a little bit of a tangent, but just to, show you, just to show you how our flesh can kind of really go off the rails, if you think that that's true, that it's, that it's a full-on, uh, that if, if that's exactly how it is, it's black and white, just like that, physical bad, spiritual good, you wind up saying, well, the only way my spirit can flourish is if I punish my body. So I'm going to fast. I'm going to flog myself. I'm going to go out in freezing temperatures. I'm going to subdue my flesh because then my spirit will flourish, right? You'll get that one seriously uh, radical side that will just punish the flesh so the spirit can flourish. And then you'll get the other side that'll say, well, physical is bad. Spiritual is good. It doesn't matter what I do to my body. I'm going to eat, drink, smoke have sex, do all these things that will damage my body because it doesn't matter. It's a bad thing anyways. My spirit's the only thing that really matters and that stuff can't bother my spirit, right? And that's what you get nowadays also is that you get a lot of Christians who will say, you know, oh, I'm just an old sack of bones and flesh and that doesn't matter. What matters is my spirit, right? And they make a sharp disconnect between body and soul that not even God makes, Right? Um, because God created both your body and your soul and he takes care of both, right? So I think that's kind of part of the root cause. It's something that keeps popping up all the time. Gnosticism never dies. It's always something we got to deal with that physical is bad. Spiritual is good. Um, and I think that equates to a lot of what American Christians believe that if it's on the outside of me, if it's a material thing, it needs to just inherently be distrusted because it can't have anything to do with the spiritual. Does that kind of make sense? Can, have y'all seen that before? Mm -hmm. Have y'all kind of seen that thinking before? Where they got 
two extremes, the Hindus and the, uh, the Christian scientists or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One way or the other. It's... Yeah. Yeah, it comes up in different... It man manifests itself in different ways for sure. But it's always a... It's always a problem because in a lot of ways, this makes a lot of sense because it's so simple, right? Um, but when you get into the nitty gritty, that's where you kind of lose people, I think, sometimes. And it's hard to argue with people who don't want to see it any other way. Um, so what's being missed out on if this is the case? If somebody sees the physical or the exterior, the out, things outside of us as bad, or as distrustful, you know, something that's not trustworthy. What's missing at, what's being missed out on? The gifts of God. Yeah. What gifts? Sacraments. Sacraments, okay. Well, um, you could, you should witness to everybody, not this drunk who's fallen down on the street and said, oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm doing so, good. Yeah, someone who's, okay. Yeah, okay. So, okay. So if we're missing out on let's see, sacraments, what is it about the sacraments, I guess, if we can go back to that. What is it about the sacraments that's missed out on? Well, Jesus wanted us to have communion. He told the disciples to, that was something they were supposed to do in remembrance of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's something that's important because, again, are we merely spiritual beings? Is that all we are, is spiritual beings? No. 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 Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, even in the end, that's not what we'll be. Right. Right. And the resurrection of the dead on the last day, Christ will raise all the saints who have gone to sleep in him, and they will have bodies, right? Resurrected bodies and souls joined back together in perfection, in glory, as Christ was on the third day, right? As he, as he is, so we will be in the same way. Not in complete similarity, but without sin, without death, in body and soul. So that is to say that now, while we're waiting for that day, now we are people who have bodies and souls. We are physical and spiritual joined together, um, inseparable only by, separated only by death. Okay? Um, and so, if that's the case, if we have a foot in the spiritual world and we have a foot in the physical world, God understands, and he has provided this, that we should have physical things that have a spiritual reality tied to them, right? Uh, that they, they have a, a promise in the spiritual sense tied to the physical means of water and the word and bread and wine and God's word, right? So that... We don't just have to worry about hearing it and believing it. We can actually physically hold on to it or physically feel it or physically taste it and literally taste and see that the Lord is good. So that is God going above and beyond, knowing that we are also physical 
creatures uh, and spiritual beings as well, he goes above and beyond to give us both worlds so that we would be assured completely, you know? Does that make sense? Is that a different way of thinking about it? Yeah. Okay. Any comments on that? Any questions on that? No? <laughs> okay. It's a lot to think about, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a lot to think about. Um, probably not something you think about every single day. Um, I don't even think about it every single day. I probably should. Um, it is my job. But it's kind of it's kind of an amazing thing when you're brought back to that reality. It's kind of kind of amazing. Anyways, um, so to go on to number four, unless anybody has anything about number three. Okay. Um, number four, baptism is gospel, the gift of God for the salvation of sinners, as says on page one thirty. Why does American Christianity deny this truth? That's a long story. <laughs> Can you shorten it a little bit? Mm. It's tough, yeah. It's hard to find the root of the matter. Mm. Um, I struggled with this. So, yeah. I know that a lot of places I've been have considered it pretty obvious that baptismal regeneration can't be right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Even to the point that they'll use that as an analogy from which to criticize other views of baptism and say, well, this is just like that old heresy, baptismal regeneration. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Okay, so so then what, 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 is, what is the reasons for rejecting baptismal regeneration then? Um, I mean, from your experience. The idea of regeneration as these folks read it from the scripture, involves the Lord changing your will and your mind and writing his law upon your heart in a way that produces fruit in your life. Mm -hmm. And they would say that that's not um, extensible to babies. Mm -hmm. That sort of okay. work cannot be done in a, a pre-conscientious mind. Mm -hmm. um, so that you, um, you would essentially evacuate the term regeneration by applying it to an infant. Mm, okay. That's the argument. Interesting. So then regeneration, what then, if that's, if that's the case, what then is regeneration relegated to? It is catalyzed by faith. So, and, and in, the, in the Reformed and Reformed Baptist traditions mm -hmm. I've been a part of, um, faith is the downstream work of regeneration. <laughs> so that you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, effectively causing you to believe. So that God is still mm. the author and finisher of our faith. Yeah. But that doesn't work in but baptism. doesn't have any baptism involved in it, except that one of the immediate first act of obedience, one of the two things you can count as ordinances that Christians always do is that they get baptized. And yeah. So the argument becomes one from silence. Scripture knows nothing of an unbaptized believer except the one who didn't have a chance on the cross. <laughs> right. The thief on the cross. Right? Yeah. So it's just what you do, but okay. it's not a mechanism or a means or any, any sacrament at all. Interesting. See, when I hear that, and I've, and I've, I've heard that before, when, when I hear that, because, you know, you cannot relegate, what is it? So, how did you put it? You cannot, 
ascribe regeneration to a pre-conscientious being yeah. in a way. I mean, well, babies have a conscience, consciousness, but maybe not as developed as it should be. When it when you say that though, um, it's the reason why I asked, like, what is what is regeneration relegated to? And it sounds like it's relegated to a notion of a rational mind. Yeah, it would be the work of God upon your rational mind, regenerating it and causing you to believe. Right. So then, so then that would mean that you would need to be a rational being first and foremost. And what level of rational, what level, what level of reason must you attain before you can be considered precisely regenerated? Does that make sense, friends, to y'all? I've known a lot of friends who struggled with that. It's essentially yeah. a Sorites paradox. When does <laughs> that little nascent bit of conscience that you see even in an 18-month-old become mm. something susceptible of the Holy Spirit's regenerative work? Yeah. You can't draw that line. That's, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. And see, that's, that's fundamentally, and I'll just put this very, very, not bluntly, but I'll just say it very directly, that, that one of the things that, kind of typifies the reformed kind of the reformed thinking on this um, while based on scripture uh, in a lot of ways winds up being uh, using reason in a magisterial sense as opposed to a ministerial sense if you'll know the difference between the two meaning that um, meaning that reason, and if it doesn't make sense, then it can't, if it can't make sense by, re I'm, I'm being very blunt about this, I guess, you know, but if it can't make sense by reason, then it, then it doesn't make sense any other way either. I think I've even heard, and I know I, I need to read Calvin, John, John Calvin to actually be able to quote him well enough. But from what I've understood that he, and, and I think even, um, who was the other, um, who was who was his um Wesley? No, Wesley came a little bit long farther after that, but uh it was um I think it was Zwingli or Knox. No, Zwingli Zwingli was uh uh before Calvin. He's a, a contemporary of Luther. But um so okay, I think it was Beza, Theodore Beza. That's who it was. So anyways, these uh Swiss the the, the guys in Geneva, basically, the Calvinists. I think it was Calvin that said that the way that he would explain Jesus entering into the upper room after his resurrection, right, with you know, Thomas and the disciples, that he appeared to them, that by his divinity, he moved all the bricks out of the way, and then he walked through the wall, and then all the bricks went back into the wall. Because, because how do you otherwise make sense of a physical being appearing in a non-physical way, you know, or going through a physical, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you explain two physical things interacting in a supernatural way? And it's just like, well, he's trying to make an explanation for how it is, as opposed to just saying, it just happened. I don't know how God is doing what he's doing. Yeah, I wasn't there. And that also goes to, and I'll just say this, I'll, I'll, I'll get into this right now, is that one of the things that we would say as Lutherans, and we actually address this in our Book of Concord, when you talk this way about uh, when you talk this way about the sacraments, 
um, being that, you know, they have to make sense in that all you see are bread and wine, all you see is water. So it makes more sense for them to be symbolic because reason can make sense of symbols. Reason can't necessarily make sense of the mysteries that baptism and Holy Communion really are. Um, so it's one of these things that um, when it comes to even, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that with the Lord's Supper. It's a different thing. But this, this, this whole understanding of reason, that reason is always supposed to be in support of faith. Um, and that we would always have to say, rightly so, that where Scripture speaks, we must speak. And where Scripture is silent, we remain silent. So how Jesus came into the upper room when he was resurrected, how he appeared to his disciples, how it is that it can be his bread, how the bread and the wine can be his body and his blood, we don't exactly know how, but we trust him when he say that this is the way that it is. And we can kind of try and plumb the depths of that mystery of how it is, but we're not going to exactly be able to know in full, right? Um, but you're going to say something else about, about that or, or with baptism specifically? Mm, I probably forgot what it was. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I, get, I get going and that's all right. Um, so, yeah, Amy. Do Baptists baptize individuals with severe mental... Incapacities. Good question. I have a brother with cerebral palsy. He's 28, likes Bob the Builder. Yeah. Hasn't been baptized. Um, so, probably not. I can't I think speak it depends, about all that, it? Is, but the ones I've known, not really, no. Yeah, mm. it, it, it depends. That's really sad. It's very sad. Um, I, and I, I know I've told this story before. I don't know if I've told the story when, with you around, Jake, but like the um, that time going around the table, asking everybody, you know, the, the guy, the, the, the professor in this multi-denominational class, asking each of us as like youth leaders, what, what would we do in the situation as a role play game? And he was a kid who had, you know, a sister who had Down syndrome or actually was just, you know, mentally handicapped. And he said, how do I know she's saved? You know, and I went down the line, everybody, everybody was saying, well, do you think that she has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And he's like, how do I know that? How do I know? And eventually people would just kept saying, well, you need to sit down and talk with the pastor. It's basically like passing, a, passing the buck off the pastor, right? Which is, you know, at least, at least they're saying, I don't know, go talk to somebody who might. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, but then it got to me and this guy and this professor knew I was a Lutheran. He knew, I think he knew what I was going to say. And I just, and I just flat out, he just, he just goes, so what do you think? And I said, is she baptized? And I saw him pause, seemed like a long time. And he just slowly said, yes. And then I said, well, then she's good. She's okay. Yeah. You know, she's like baptism as, as scripture says in, in, Peter's epistle, this baptism now saves you, right? This, not as a washing of the dirt from body, but as a promise of a clean conscience in God's sight to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like when you're baptized, you're baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And, you know, that his grace has been poured out onto us, you know, as Titus 3, 5 says, and, that, you know, that we are born by water and the spirit. And man, she's okay. 
she's going to be all right. And he just goes, all right, I'm done with you. He goes on to the next person, right? And, and, and there's comfort and assurance that's in that because of the promise that's tied to the baptism. Um, as, as Pastor Wolf Mueller went into with this uh, chapter, right? That for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? Um, that baptism has something to do with salvation every single time you see it. Right? It's not just an outward work. Um, and I think that American Christianity denies this because they just can't quite separate that outward work from uh, they have to find ways to explain the clear teaching, explain away the clear teaching of Scripture on baptism. Either that or they just don't know because they haven't really been taught about exactly what Scripture says, right? Um, long and short, I, I just don't think they understand it any other way. Um, but it, it doesn't make sense... Uh, it doesn't make sense in the way that we would explain it, you know, which again is, is very sad because I, I a couple weeks ago, I got a, I got a tech, I, I got an email from the, the, the GCMA, the Gillespie County Ministerial Alliance or whatever. I, I don't, I don't really go to the meetings. I get the, the emails so I can stay in the loop on stuff. And at one of these churches in town, I forget which one, but, and it was a sacramentarian uh, church meaning that they don't they don't they see the sacraments as ordinances and not as you know the means of grace that they were saying pray pray for the family of these people who lost their child who lived only 20 28 hours and i thought to myself i pretty much know that that kid was not baptized mm -hmm. and sure. that happens mm -hmm. that happens with stillbirths that happens with miscarriages that happens and when that happens we must say you know god is a gracious god he is merciful we must rely on his grace and his mercy in this instance and trust that he will do what is right and what is just and what is loving we press that into the lord yeah it's it's his it's his realm so we can't say that baby's in hell. We can't say that baby's in heaven. We say we, we commend that child to the Lord. But man, with what Scripture says about baptism, it's just really sad that those parents have to go on living their life wondering, mm -hmm. wondering about their child, as opposed to having that sure and certain promise laid on that child uh, so that they would have comfort knowing without a doubt, according to God's promise, their child is at rest, you know. Um, when I was yeah. in any part of nurse, there was a baby, there's a, a time limit. If they reach a certain number of weeks, they go to NICU because they can save them. But prior to that, their lungs and brain and everything, nothing's developed enough. And they can't save them. And if they took them to NICU, they just set them aside. So it's better that the parents get to hold this baby. So I asked them, were they Christians? And they said yes. 
And I said, do you want this baby to be baptized? Because mm -hmm. it was only going to live minutes. Mm -hmm. And they said, yes, I did a lay baptism. Good for you. Because I knew our church approved of that. Yeah. Or, and so they were, okay, you know, they were okay with it. Mm -hmm. They were in favor of it. Good. Yeah, we are. I mean, if if you have a hymnal, you can open up the hymnal in the back, and there's a there's a um, rubric for emergency baptism, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, um, yeah, it's one of those things that it doesn't quite make sense on a ra on, on on a rationalistic level how babies can believe. So with that, let's go on to number five because we're running out of, we're a little over time, but we started a little a little late. Um, but let's just keep going through these. So infant baptism is, is so anathema to American Christianity. Like, what did he say? He said most of the friends that, is, that he, he and his wife lost when they became Lutheran, they lost over the doctrine of baptism, right? It's on page 130. Um, about the babies, though, I, I think the, the answer for this is on 132. So why should infants be baptized? Because. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Because. <laughs> yeah. Can we get a little bit more than well, just because? <laughs> they, he lists all the scripture. Oh, Jesus says, he makes it clear that babies can and do believe. And then he gives you all the text. Right. That I, you know... Yeah, with, uh, what is it, I believe, what is that, Luke 1, 15, Yeah, so all those texts do make it clear that babies can, can and do believe. Uh, and he says, you know, he warns, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Oh... I wish I wish that was a law that we voted on today and on the ballots. Anyways, um, <laughs> some of those propositions I thought were pretty good, but we're not going to go into that right now. Um, so, if our definition of faith excludes, like he says, excludes infants and children, then our definition of faith is different than Jesus's. Um, believers' baptism and infant baptism are not exclusive categories, like he says, right? The Lutheran Church does not baptize infants because they have faith. Infants are baptized first because of the command of Jesus to baptize the nations, right? Infants are included in nations. Jesus doesn't say, go therefore and make disciples of all people above the age of accountability. <laughs> Sorry, I know that's being a little blunt again, but he doesn't say that, right? He says, go therefore and baptize all nations. Oh. All of them, Right? Um, and, and so infants are included in the nations. And second, because this promise is that, is that this gift is for our children, as Peter says in Acts, right? Um, but we do trust that the Holy Spirit creates and sustains faith in the word and that Jesus has bound up his word of promise to the gift of baptism. That's why we say, if you're going to baptize your baby, they need to be in church, they need to be. Because Jesus doesn't say it lightly. He doesn't just say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then they're good for the rest of their life. He says, no, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Yeah. 
And lo, I am with you even until the very end of the age. Yeah. Whereas you got to teach. Yeah, you must teach where, them. Where do they get the teaching? Where do they get the teaching? Yeah. Yeah. At home. It should be church. at home, at church, right? That's right. That's why in our small catechism we say, as the head of the house should teach his entire household, right? That the small catechism is first and foremost for the house. Yeah. But as an extension of the church, right? So, yeah, we teach our kids and we teach anybody who is a convert who's never been baptized before. We don't just say, now that you're baptized, you know, come and go as you please. If you want to come on certain Sundays or not, whatever. No, no, no. You got you to gotta come and be in the word because now you're a child of God and, you know, children listen to their father. Right? <laughs> they want to learn. They're supposed to. Right. So infants should be baptized because of the command. And we can't forget that it is a command. Uh, but it is a command with a promise, right? Um, baptize all nations, and second, because it was promised that the gift is for our children. Um, any any thoughts, questions about this? <laughs> it is a direct opposition of kind of what you were saying, though, about people and the, the rationalizing of it all. The, uh, James, are you going to say? Well, you know, baptize a child, it is the responsibility of the parents. Yeah. I mean, I struggle with, you know, being a grandparent and having a grandkids that weren't baptized. You know, do I go pull an Archie Bunker and do it myself? No. <laughs> probably shouldn't. <laughs> no, you probably shouldn't. In fact, that was kind of funny. I, I, I had that same situation. I was the godfather of, of uh, I, I, was, I was the godfather in a certain situation and they baptized you know the baby in in the name of jesus our teacher and his spirit now that's not the triune name right so i was trying to find a way to get that baby and baptize that baby myself but then i'm kind of glad i didn't because then if 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 i would have done that i would have been just like the roman catholics believing believing that just the act of doing it is what makes it so ex opere operato right that just because it's done means that it's effective. But it's not a tied to the teaching that the parents should be doing, right? It's not tied to the teaching that they would be getting from a pastor. That it's separate from those two things, and you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Right, right. And, then, and you really, the teaching is like, you have to have that. Because when you baptize a child, they get a bullseye on their chest. Yeah. Yeah, and on their back. <laughs> Yeah, wherever the devil. wherever the devil wants yeah wants wants to hit them, they are they have a target. Yeah, that baby is now a child of God, and Satan hates them. Yeah, yeah, and he's going to come after them. And if you're not reinforcing them with the word of God, then you're leaving them vulnerable to attack and apostasy. Yeah, it's a scary thing for sure. Um, so it's not something we take lightly. It's not a once saved, always saved with baptism thing. You have to teach the kids. So, yeah. Can I just say I imagined a pretty good Amber Alert about you abducting that child? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it would have only been for like five minutes. Suspect <laughs> so wearing a black and white collared yeah. shirt. You know? <laughs> well, no, it's funny because that was before I went to the seminary. So I was like, this is kind of a funny thing. Uh, but no, I did, I did talk to a professor of mine at the seminary. I was like, did I 
do the right thing and not doing and not baptizing that kid. And, 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 and he said, yeah, because, and, and he put it in the realm of not valid baptism. He, did, he didn't use the word valid. He said, I don't, I don't like using the word valid. I like using the word true. Is it a true baptism or is it not? And he said, it would, have, it would be a true baptism if the parents consent and if they agree to bring that child for further instruction in the faith after they are baptized so that they can be brought up in the church. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like your baptism, you got the parents' approval. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Oh, yeah, that's, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, great. That didn't work. Very good. If it worked the other way, I would just go rent a fire hose and just drive <laughs> down the street and just and just spray it and baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, right. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Actually, it's really funny because uh, I knew a guy who was joking around with Baptists. He's a Lutheran. He was joking around with Baptists one time, and he said. And, and, and um, uh, he had a styrofoam cup and he wrote um, emergency baptismal kit and just like set it on the table and just kind of sat back. And then he said, hey, maybe we should go to the movies. Um, maybe we should go to the movies later and, and, and I can just sit in the back and I can just quietly sprinkle people with water <laughs> and baptize them. And then they're good for the rest of their lives. You can see the Baptist going, no. And I was like, yeah, we don't even believe. You know, he was just doing a caricature of what they thought that we, we believe, <laughs> right? So, yeah, babies, they should be baptized. Um, it's, it's a beautiful gift for our children. Um, so, now, we get to number six, all right? And we're going to hopefully close soon after this because we're going over a little bit of time. Number six, the Lord's Supper is the body and blood, and it is the bread and the wine, uh, it brings life and salvation. So why would American Christianity minimize it by saying it is just symbolic? But why would they do that? They've been taught that. Uh huh. They've been taught it. Yeah. So they just kind of take it for granted, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the Lord said. He said it's about your blood. Yeah. I think we're still trapped in a pre-modern sort of philosophy that thinks symbols are things we can understand. Yeah. <laughs> when, when really they're not. No. That was my answer to your question. It's easier to understand that way. Yeah, it's, it's easier to understand it as, as a symbol than, yeah. And I wrote this on the board, and this is what I was going to get to earlier, but I figured I'd save it because it's actually about Holy Communion. I mean, Jake, you've probably seen this before, right? Maybe not. In, in Reformed circles, this is a saying when it comes to an understanding of the Lord's Supper. The finite cannot contain the infinite. Now, on its face, does that make sense? I know. <laughs> okay. On some level, it might. On some level, it might. Okay? Because that's it to say that the finite is something that can be wrangled into the infinite. You know, um... But it's interesting because the Lutherans actually, it's when we we had a, a big dispute early on, not not like early on, but it was right after Luther died, and there were disputes that arose over our understanding of the Augsburg Confession and what we believe about the Holy Communion, and it was because more people of Reformed thinking were in, influencing the Lutherans on the issue of the Lord's Supper, and it came down to 
um, came down to an interesting resolution for the Lutherans. Because the Lutherans in the formula of Concord attack this issue about the Lord's Supper and say, if you believe that the Lord's Supper is merely symbolic, if you believe that the Lord's Supper is only bread and wine, and that Jesus only means it in a symbolic way, because, and you might have different reasons of believing why, but at the time, and even to this day, certain, certain Reformed Christians believe this, that um, Jesus cannot be present in the bread and the wine on the altar and at, across the globe because he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is, yeah, I know. Well, here, just hear me out. This is the thought. And on some level, it makes sense because they say he rose from the dead bodily, right? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it might have, it's probably changed a little bit now, but at the time they were saying because he sits in a physical location as a physical being at the right hand of the Father, he cannot be there on the altar. You just can't. And when the Lutherans tackled this, they said, if he can't, he's not God. He's just not. Mm-hmm. He's just not, right? Because if you say that the finite cannot contain the infinite, what if the infinite says, I want to be contained by the finite? And he doesn't. Then you're just reading Philippians. Yeah, right? Exactly. So... It becomes kind of this again. Reason is, reason is encroaching on faith. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's taking the place in a lot of the places where faith should be. Just simply trusting that God says what what God says is true. James, you're going to say something. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, how could they? Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. It's. It's rationalism. Um, in yeah. some ways, it's a child of the Enlightenment, you know. Um, I think, therefore, I am kind of um, thought. That came a little bit after Calvin, I'll be honest with you. But it's kind of, it's, it's all within that same realm of thinking that reason needs to play a big role. And it takes over in some cases, right? What is God? Everywhere. Yeah, he's everywhere. And specifically, he is located where he's promised to be. Yeah. He's promised to be. Um, yeah, lo, I am with you always until the very end of the age. Right? Or two or three are gathered. Right. And, and um, when he says, this is my body, this is the, covenant, the cup of the new covenant, the New Testament, in my blood... You know, take, eat, take, drink, right? Um, And when you minimize this saying to be just symbolic, you know, like you said, it's easier on some level to think that symbolism makes sense, right? Um, But it's a mystery. How is Christ present? We're not like the Roman Catholics, the papists, right, who say, you know, that's a bit of a derogatory term, but, you know, those who follow the Pope, we are not like them who say that transubstantiation must be the way to explain it. Luther even said in one of his treatises, he's, I forget which one it is, but in one of his treatises he said, you know, if you want to believe that, then fine, but where you go wrong is you make me believe it. 
You say, I must believe it. And I say, I can't, I can't do that. I mean, if that is going to be your explanation for it, then let it be. But don't make me believe it, because who knows if that's actually what's happening. Probably isn't. Actually, it isn't. Because their understanding of accident and substance and all that stuff. Anyways, so how you see the Lord's Supper does affect how you believe about Jesus, right? I mean, you cannot really separate the two. And in fact, that's one of my favorite things about uh, the early church fathers, uh, St. Athanasius, when he, and I'll probably end on this, <laughs> when he was dealing with the Arians who said that, you know, Jesus is just the highest created being, in some sense, Michael the Archangel incarnate, right? You know, he's not really God. He's just the height of creation in that way. Athanasius said, well, then what do you eat and drink at the Lord's Supper? Do you eat and drink the flesh and blood of a man? If you eat and drink the flesh and blood of a man, what good does that do you? How can that forgive your sins as it proclaims? If it's not the flesh and blood of God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ, then we're mere cannibals. Yeah, exactly. Then we're just eating the flesh and blood of a man. Nothing more, right? Um, so, but it is a mystery. And the difference between a mystery and a secret, I, I like this distinction, is that once you know a secret, that's all, that's all there is to it. That's it. You, you know, I, I know a secret that you don't know. You know, so-and-so, um, so-and-so cheated on his taxes. Oops, now you know it. Now there's nothing else to know about that secret. But a mystery is that the more you explain it, the more mysterious it becomes. You know, I could sit here and spend hours explaining the body and blood of Christ on the altar, and it would just become more and more of a mystery as to exactly how that is. Right? And also the same thing with holy baptism. So, any questions on this? Well, a mystery, you know, Jesus... The Bible says that we see now, and uh, however you rephrase it, dimly or as a clouded mirror. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we won't know everything. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Yeah. We don't have to know all the details. Yeah. You mm -hmm. just have to believe. Yeah, just trust Jesus. He's not going to lie to you, right? It's that simple. Jesus won't lie to you. Um, so just take him at his word. Yeah. Okay. Any other closing thoughts, questions? A little long tonight, but hey, it's a pretty deep chapter, right? A lot of stuff. I heard that immersion pun. <laughs> That's good, immersion. So yeah, I'll close with this, and I'll just read the last little paragraph that Pastor Wolfmuller has in this chapter, which is a good summation. So... The Lord's gifts are objective. They are sure. They are, not, um, they are not internal spiritual activities, but external gifts and promises. His love is as sure as the water in baptism, as sure as the bread and wine on the altar, as sure as this word of promise, your sins are forgiven. This certainty is our confidence and the foundation of our faith. Okay. Well, if there are no more questions or, or comments or anything like that, or if you want to save them for after class, we can do that too. Uh, but if going once, twice, comments, questions.
Three, Three times. <laughs> All right. Sold. Let's let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.